Um, anyway, so she would say she was a grateful alcoholic. And I, you know, I, I love her energy and her smile and all of her shares, but I was still had a little hard time wrapping my head around that I'm a grateful alcoholic shit. Um, but guess what? Now I'm a grateful alcoholic, so, you know, it works, right? Um, anyway, I could go on and on and on about um, the amazing, uh, wonderful things that Francine has brought to my life, but instead I'm going to let her bring that wonderful stuff to your life. And so, um, Francine, without further ado, please. So, hello, family of choice. Um, my name is Francine, and I am a grateful and lucky recovering alcoholic. That's true. Um, so, I guess uh, there are a couple. Of this, you know what I want to start with? I want to ring the damn bell. I want to ring the bell. Um, Ring the bell, open the book, and light the candle. I have always wanted to say that in a coven meeting, and I am not a witch, so I, I'm going to do it here. But I, before I start on, on this, this um, story, I, I uh, was talking to someone earlier this afternoon about seven steps. I guess I'll move the flowers now. But those are so nice. Um, and... Um, this is something that I just started doing, and so I thought I would um, I would share this. You know what it's like now, right? Um, I burn candles with the moon's visibility to set intentions, and um, I have not done this very long. But I mean, I know the moon is always full, but but when it's uh, when the visibility is um, increasing or waxing, I focus on that's the the red part. Uh, I focus on things that I um, want to see increase in my life. When, when I start to think about things too much and, and then I remember, oh, that's right, I have intentions and plans and actions. Like something as, this, is, this should probably be more important than it is, but like um, saving money <laughs> instead of spending it. Um, so on waxing moons, I think about um, increasing that. Uh, on waning moons, I think about decreasing debt. Um, what I'm doing really right now, though, and it's a way of practicing mindfulness. I am a shitty Buddhist. Uh, I meditate when it's nice out. I go out on my deck. If it's not nice, I don't meditate. Uh, I pray in here, sometimes with uh, not the best attitude. <laughs> and, um, but I, I will be mindful. Candles keep me mindful. I have more candles burning in my house than I have uh, vintage typewriters in my house. So... Um, um, and r right now it's a decreasing moon. It's uh, the 19th was uh, the full visibility. And so right now what I'm focusing on is um, the decrease in my perceptions of threat, which is not the same as threat, my the inside job of a threat. Catastrophizing, which I think probably most of us have some experience with, um, living in the wreckage of my future, all the inside jobs, that stuff. And really what this story is about is that inside job and how early uh, it, it manifested in my life. Um, so, um, so this program works for a lot of people. Um, but one of the tenets of it, powerlessness, uh, for women is nothing new. 
And um, so I'd like to begin with a line that I don't hear talked about in the rooms much, but it was a deal breaker for me when I came in the first time. Um, it's inscribed on every sobriety coin in every pocket and every wallet in this room, and it is written by the other bill, the one who could actually write. And it says, to thine own self be true. Shakespeare. Will Shakespeare, yeah. And um, that, for me, has been one of the most powerful um, slogans, was what we call it in Buddhism, uh, to live by. And um, um, I know that even in 2019, fidelity to oneself can, can sound pretty transgressive, especially in a, in a room that is you know, committed to service, and, and that is, it's on the same side as, as to thine own self be true. But it's, a, I think, a very transgressive idea for a lot of women. Um, if my sampling of 18 to 20-year-old college students is any indication. So, um, so I drank alcoholically from 1984 to 1990 for about 22 months from 94 to 96, and for about nine months <coughs> in 2003. Um, there is no legal, medical, or employment paper trail documenting the disease in my life. So this story is really for anyone who does have an alcoholic paper trail, um, as, as I heard Mikey call it once, um, who thinks they might not belong here. Um, and for anyone, but especially women, and especially women in early sobriety, and especially women who aren't here tonight, who might hear this podcast, which is why I... Uh, realized that it was a good idea, maybe, to have these recordings for that woman in Laramie, Wyoming, who has one meeting um, a week. I, would, I wouldn't have made it on one meeting a week. So, lady in Laramie, Wyoming, this, this story is for you. Um, but, you know, my, my alcoholic uh, journey was not very long. It was not very interesting. Um, and I kind of copped to the fact that it wasn't going to get better relatively quickly. And what I really wanted to talk about instead was um, my most important fourth step and what it was like before that and what it was like, what happened and what it was like after. So I've never done this before. I've told my story about a million times and I always go off the rails and, you know, talk about, you know, random shit. Um, but this... This is important because it's about my mom and um, about my childhood and um, about the, what I think might be the nature of this, um, this disease. So before I get into what it was like, I just wanted to say that um, I've been thinking a lot about the medical and scientific model of the disease and my own relatively soft landing once I realized that it centered in my DNA and my genes. It was, I inherited this from my dad's side of the family. Um, I, we did not drink, there was no alcohol in my family. We were like uh, Blake Wobegon Lutherans. We did not drink. Um, I never saw alcohol. I mean, there were people in my neighborhood, like Mr. Mattioli and Mr. McGinnis would like sit on their back porch and drink and sing and stuff. And that looked pretty drunk, but we didn't really know them. You know, the, that was something other people did. And, um, and my first step experience in 2003, the one that really took, not the one in 96, was that I realized that um, I was never gonna be able to control my drinking. It was, I did not metabolize alcohol the way normal drinkers did, and I would not stop once I started. 
And that's what distinguishes me as an alcoholic, not the consequences, uh, except the ones between my ears, which were kind of awful. So, um, so um, I felt restless, irritable, and discontent long before I ever took a drink. Uh, or drank alcoholically. And I wonder if that restlessness and anxiety was uh, like a conscious mind manifestation of the DNA or something. Um, and I, I would just grasp around for reasons to justify how I felt, which I still do. But now I go, I wonder if I'm just grasping around for reasons because I feel I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Maybe I need a nap, you know? And so I have, I'm having a feeling and I'm taking it really seriously and attacking, attaching storylines to it, you know? So, um, so I'm going to give you the, the restless, irritable, and discontented elementary school years, high school years, and college years, and that's where the drinking started. So, um, so restless, irritable, discontented, the elementary school years. So as a child, I did not sleep. Um, I missed a lot of that's so silly. I missed a lot of morning kindergarten, and I remember my kindergarten teacher telling me how much school I missed, and I was like, not my circus, not my clown. I'm five, you know? It's like, I, I, don't, I can't even tell time. I, why are you telling me this? I can't set an alarm clock. You know, talk to the brass. And this, but this, this sense that there was something that I was bad because I wasn't going to school. I mean, putting me in afternoon kindergarten would have solved that problem. But, um, you know, I don't know. But I also, so this was, and this wasn't like a one-time event. There was just this underlying feeling of being off, like out of gear, you know. Um, and, and I can't honestly blame it on my family or my mother or anything like that. And I wasn't raised Catholic. And um, I, I, which I, you know, but like I, I, it was just this low thrum of anxiety that I always felt. I was afraid of crossing bridges because I thought they might collapse. Um, I was afraid of riding in elevators because they might get stuck. Um, I remember seeing a Barbie movie where the car came apart and we always drove beater cars and I was convinced our car was gonna come apart probably while we were crossing a bridge, you know, and, uh, and so I would hang over the front seat so I could grab onto my mom if anything happened. And, and it wasn't like this occurred to me occasionally. That was like my headspace as a little kid. I was like a little Woody Allen. <laughs> so I don't know, you know. And so one day in third grade, I hit Brian Lewis with my hat, and he was provoking me. He deserved it. And one of the little pom-poms hit him in the eye, and he told me his mother was going to call the police on me, and they were going to arrest me and put me in jail, and I believed him. And I was just, every time I heard a siren, I was just like, oh, my God, they're coming for me. This is it. You know, this, I'm going to bring shame onto my family. And, um, and I just, I really, like, believed that, you know, and that was when I started reading all the time. That was when I started reading books constantly to distract myself. So um, the summer before sixth grade, uh, I, I, I went from not being able to sleep and being like an insomniac child to being afraid I was gonna die in my sleep. And so I was afraid to go to sleep. It was like a Twilight Zone episode and this sounds so crazy right now. But, um, and my mom had twin beds in her room and so I'd wait till she fell asleep and then I'd go in there and sleep in the other bed. I don't know why I thought that would solve the problem, but I was, you know, like 11, so what did I know? Um, and then that summer we went to SeaWorld. 
and I had a convulsion, and I woke up in a pool of vomit, which was sort of foreshadowing, and, uh, <laughs> and, and an ambulance waiting to take me to the emergency room. And so finally, I felt justified. There was something wrong with me. Something was wrong. Something was wrong with my brain. And I knew it. All that time, I knew something was wrong. I just didn't know what it was. And so... Um, for about five months, I was just terrified that it was going to happen again, and I became really hyper-aware of like how I felt in my body. Like, um, like, like I was afraid. Like, I remembered that you know I felt kind of nauseous and went outside, and um, my throat felt kind of constricted, and um, I couldn't get a good breath, and I was kind of dizzy. Which is all this stuff, like that I expect to happen in a good yoga class. Now, you know, it's like if I haven't gotten all four of those at least once in ninety minutes, that's a fail. You know. <laughs> But I, I was 11, you know, I was a little kid. And um, so anytime I felt any of those things, I would just think, okay, I'm going to have another convulsion. And I'd look around for my mom because she knew what to do. And one day I was at my best friend's house for lunch, and her little brother, who was uh, severely mentally handicapped, was having some kind of an episode. And Beth and her mom were trying to calm him down, and it freaked me out. And I got panicky and anxious. And... Um, I was afraid I was going to have a convulsion, and I walked home, and I did not go back to school for two months. And I did not want my mother out of my sight. I would not eat with people, which is hilarious now, because it seems like that's all I do. And, um, and uh, I just stayed home and read and read and read. And Nancy Drew and Laura Ingalls Wilder were my constant invisible companions. Um, so I had not had a drink yet, but I could have used one. Um, I went to a neurologist who checked me at, uh, into a hospital for an EEG for epilepsy and x-rays for a brain tumor, and I was there for three days and three nights, and they found nothing, which is great, but I really wanted an answer, and they didn't have one to give me, or my mother. And, um... You know what I liked about being, the only thing I liked about being in the hospital was that somebody was always there. There was always somebody there. I was so afraid of being alone. So, because of what I thought. Like the four horsemen in the big book they talk about, I, I was like, oh that, yeah. Like that was like fourth grade. That I, I didn't need to drink and then not drink to know about that. I, I just had these tapes in my, you know, and if, you know, today maybe that would have been diagnosed as anxiety. Maybe it would have been, I don't know, maybe I was ADHD. I have no idea. Um, the, the good thing, again, is that I'm glad I didn't get into a cycle of medication because that can go off the rails very easily. And um, I found you guys. So I really am grateful um, for that. But anyways, I was, so I was still high-strung and nervous, and a few years before all this, my mom had started taking Valium, which was not uncommon in the 70s for women or men, anyone. Um, this the be, you know, beginning of Big Pharma. And when I couldn't sleep or was just keyed up about something, she would uh, give me half a Valium or a quarter of a Valium because she didn't want to see me struggling like that. And, you know, I'll, I've, I've told people that... Um, you know, there's, you know, it's like, you know, it helped. And it was compassionate. And it was one of the most nurturing things she ever did. And she was a good mom. But that was like, she knew what that felt like. Um, she was also pretty high strung. Um, so when I was 12, uh, she sat me down and told me that my dad, who had died six weeks before I was born, had committed suicide. That it had not been a shooting accident. 
Um, and I thought, well, if they lied to me about how he died, what if they're lying to me about why he died? And um, there was a story about something at work, and there was a, you know, he had made a terrible mistake, and it made no sense to me. And I was like, he couldn't handle another kid. He did not want a third kid. That's why he did it. So even at 12, I was taking stories that I wasn't even in and making them about me. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? Um, so that was, that was those were the elementary years. So uh, irritable, restless, and discontented, the teenage years. So that was my new story. It was like, oh, that explains it. It was a cosmic clerical error. I shouldn't have been conceived. If I hadn't been, he would still be here. My family wouldn't be poor, and they probably hate me. Um, you know. Um, so for years after that, I barely acknowledged, much less celebrated my birthday. And if someone tried to, I felt like they were mocking <coughs> me, or they were just doing it to, out of duty or something. And um, I carried that from sophomore year of high school until my first girlfriend started to chip away at that when I was 29. Um, so those 14 years of that storyline, like wearing its grooves into my brain. And I remember that, that same girlfriend, this was when I worked at Martin Brothers here in Austin after I moved here, they threw me a, a birthday party. And I wouldn't go in unless they promised not to sing and not mention it was my birthday. Oh. It was a surprise birthday party. I was like, no, 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 no. And, but I was like, I, was, I mean, I was just so freaked out. I didn't know how to act in the presence of people who were actively glad I was there. And there was nothing wrong with my family, but we were just very, like, I don't know if you know Midwesterners and Lutherans, but Lutherners, Lutherans, but they're not touchy-feely, and they, they don't talk about feelings or anything. One time my mother, I remember, and I was in my 20s or 30s, and uh, she was telling me how she just felt really bad, and she just wasn't well, and I went off on this rant about, like, the human condition and, you know, existential angst and she was like no it's like my arthritis you know and <laughs> so I so it wasn't like they had these intense like Bergman-esque feelings and didn't talk about them or maybe they did and, and didn't I don't know it just wasn't part of what we talked about so um, on my 16th birthday, I, I called my mom to come get me out of school because I, I felt like, and no, but I don't even think anyone knew it was my birthday. Maybe like my closest friends did. But if anyone said anything to me, it just felt like sarcasm or mockery. And I couldn't make eye contact. I just, I have no, I, that is still one of the days that I remember feeling so uncomfortable in my own skin. I, I just, it was just unbearable. And um, I didn't tell her that part, though. I just said I didn't feel well. She came and she got me. And um, I didn't have a curfew, uh, which caused a lot of my friend's mothers to question my mother's parenting. Um, and I got my first boyfriend when I was about 16 who had, you know, like a car so we weren't stuck in his parents' rec room or football games and stuff like that. But when Dan and I went out... Um, <laughs> He just kind of blew off his curfew, and so he eventually got grounded. He, they actually wanted us to break up, but we got the sentence reduced to, I think, a month grounded from each other and then two weeks. And, um, but, and that, that was not uncommon with a lot of my friends' parents. They were like, it wasn't, I mean, it, we didn't do anything bad, but they, I just, I was like, I was not going to be the person to, like, pull the plug on time. It was... And so um, 
I was not popular with uh, a lot of my friends' parents. And, um, but Dan really liked me. And I really liked being liked a lot. <laughs> and what I remember is feeling valued because he risked punishment to stay out with me. And that felt really validating. Um, and he was affectionate and um, uh, um, um, you know, just um, and just validating and and without being like there wasn't any like sex pressure or anything like that, but it was it was just so uh, intoxicating. You know, it was so comforting to be with with somebody like that. Um, so I was still a terrible insomniac, and I would take NyQuil just to get to sleep. I was, like, such an unimaginative alcoholic. And I missed tons of school. I missed uh, an entire year of school in high school just from being absent. And um, I would fake sore throat so my mom would buy more NyQuil uh, or Valium if I didn't think she would notice. You know, but, I would, but she, you know, I also saw the effects that the Valium had on her, and she would sleep all afternoon, and I wouldn't be able to wake her, and that was scary. And uh, she would cry uncontrollably, um, it seemed to me, and that was terrifying. So Valium was not attractive to me in that sense, but sometimes I just felt so uncomfortable, I would, I would take it. And um, this one time, I, I, I was wound up about something, and um, then Dan and I went out, and, um, and we were drinking, but like our drinking... It was like 3-2 beer in Ohio. It's like not even real beer. And, or, or would split a six-pack, would get a real six, a beer, like a six-pack of real beer, you know? And so it wasn't like heavy-duty drinking. It was like a Bruce Springsteen song or something. But, um, but I, you know, but on an empty stomach in Valium, that goes a long way. And so I, I had like this episode and I started crying uncontrollably and I couldn't tell him why because I didn't know, and um, that scared him. And it also contributed to that sense that there was something wrong with me, and no one seemed to have this problem. And um, to be fair, I did a reasonable job of hiding it if I wasn't flaming out on pallium and beer. I was, you know, like my day life, I was okay most of the time. You know, I had friends, and I was involved in, in things, and, you know, um, I, but the space between my ears was uh, a very bad neighborhood. So I decided that part of my problem was that we were poor and didn't have a dad, and I was going to get as far away from Steubenville, Ohio, as I could and reinvent myself, and uh, like Jay Gatsby, and uh, <laughs> without the murder. And I, that was a spoiler, and yeah. sorry. And uh, I did really well on the PSATs, which is like the pre-SAT thing. And I was getting college scholarship offers when I was, you know, like a junior in high school. And um, I got invited to apply for this summer writing workshop uh, between junior and senior year. And um, Dan didn't want me to go because it was his final summer before college. He was a year younger than, or a year older than me. And so one night he got drunk and made out with one of my friends, and I found out about it the next day. And it was just a gut punch to my uh, almost non-existent self of our sense of self-esteem. It was just, uh, it was, it just felt like, it, it, I guess it felt like a betrayal, but it also felt like a robbery, because he was um, 
the source of uh, attention and affection and approval, and it was gone now, you know, um, because I, I, you know, I had, I had position in the high school, and, you know, I couldn't see him after that. Um, pride, I guess, which is not always a bad thing, actually, but, um, but every time I thought about it, it gutted me, and um, I thought about it constantly, and my mom tried to talk to me about it, and she thought I was just really crazy about him, but I was crazy about the attention and the affection and the approval. And that is a story for another room um, <laughs> that I have uh, put some time in. And, uh, and I worked at the county library then, and I remember like shelving in the stacks in the basement and just sobbing while I was like, shelving books. And the librarians would come down and go, are you all right? And I was like, Ooh. I just kept shelving books and they tried to be kind and it didn't help. Kindness was, it, I just, I was so lost. And I still will have episodes where my emotions will just sort of override my cognitive functions. You know, I'll just, I, I won't be able to think clearly because I'm just so flooded with uh, um, affect. <laughs> but, um, as a psychiatrist once told me to call that. And, uh, and uh, but today I go, oh, that's that thing. You know, I don't have to believe that that is a realistic response to the world or what's going on around me is, oh, I'm having one of those things and I can just kind of back away from it, usually. So, um, the workshop was in upstate New York at Bard College, and most of the kids were from the Upper West Side. And um, I found my first tribe, and they were the liberal artists. <laughs> and there was uh, a warmth and affection that I felt from those guys that was wonderful. And um, thinking about this story, I realized that a lot of those kids were actually the children, or the grandchildren of um, Holocaust survivors. and. Uh, and I was thinking about how the three times I felt that kind of community that is just like, we got you, you know, like that, was those guys. And um, uh, when I came out and the gay community, which was in the thick of uh, the AIDS epidemic and ACT UP and literally fighting for people's lives, um, and here, you know. Um, but anyway, so, so I love I loved my tribe. I love my liberal artists and my writers. And if you're wondering, like, when is she going to start talking about alcohol? Um, I remember drinking at the pub on campus at Bard, and uh, we went to Woodstock for a day trip, and I remember having a Heineken there. I do not recall craving five more. I was, it, that thing had not kicked in yet. It was, it, I had not made the connection between this, this, Discomfort and the alcohol—that that marriage had not yet occurred. It's coming. Um, so four of those writers and poets had their sights set on Sarah Lawrence College, and I decided that's where I was going. Even though my mom told my English teachers not to write me letters of recommendation because she couldn't afford those schools, but she couldn't afford any schools. I mean, we were we were scholarship and financial aid and loan kids. Um, we had no money, and uh, I figured if I'm going to underwrite this, I'm going to go where I want. So um, <coughs> self-will run right saved me my fucking life. Um, it was the, the first adult decision I made, and it was exemplary. It was the first good decision I made in my life was going to Sarah Lawrence. But it did cause a rift between my mother and I. And um, 
today I can understand why, but I'm so glad I went. Um, but I wanted to be close to the city and I wanted to be with my tribe. And um, I just felt like she who paid the piper called the tune and that was going to be me. So I was going to go where I wanted. So in college, the uh, restless, ir irritable, and disconnect the, discontent, the college years. So we were like the Beverly Hillbillies um, arriving at Sarah Lawrence, which is a private liberal arts college uh, in Westchester, New York. And, um, you know, there were chauffeurs un unloading limousines. And uh, this is where I was going to reinvent myself with my polyester blend fast fashion from Kmart. So that was a thing. <laughs> and... Um, that didn't, that's not how that went down. But um, it had been a women's college until the 70s. Uh, but by the time I got there, it was about 30% men. And um, I met my boyfriend there the second week of the first semester, and he's who I moved here with. Um, so I saw a psychiatrist the fall of sophomore year, and I remember counting hours till I met with him, although I don't know how articulate I was talking about feelings or what was going on because I didn't have the vocabulary. Uh, but I always felt better after I talked to him, and I still wasn't sleeping well, and I had a terror of being alone at night with my thoughts, and uh, I usually slept in either Patrick's room or uh, in someone else's room like you do in college where you just kind of fall asleep in someone's room, and then you get up before your first class the next day, you know? Um, and I remember drinking at parties and smoking pot, but I did not think about it otherwise. It was not part of my weekly routine. It was something that I did on weekends if something was going on. Um, but something else happened at Sarah Lawrence, and that was that I met my first lesbians. <laughs> and they were majestic, fearsome creatures. And I would get these crushes on women, but they were, they were um, you know, but it was like, you know, from afar. And, uh, and, uh, I, I associate the onset of this with, with one of them who, not because we ever drank together, but because of the, um, the, the strength of my feelings about, about this part of myself that I did not feel like I could claim. And um, her name is Lisa, and she was the older sister of a very good friend of mine, and she was a basketball player at Vassar. And so I would only see her when she'd come down and, and see Eric, and, um, and we got along really well. But, you know, I had this boyfriend that I was, I was devoted to, I really, and I really loved him. Um, you know, she always had, you know, girlfriends, and uh, she just, you know, she, it was, it was um, that kind of friendship. And uh, so that was like sophomore year, I think I met her, and... Um, you know, I would just be like in a daze for like weeks after she would come visit, and uh, her her brother, not me, but you know, I would get to hang out with them. So, um, spring of senior year, uh, I was looking for a job in New York, and I needed to find one, or I was going to be going back to my mother's two room apartment in Steubenville, Ohio, and I would have rather given birth than done that, and so. Um, <laughs> So uh, there was so just a lot of pressure. I you know I was you know how liberal arts graduates are. They can talk, they can read, and they can write. And um, there were a lot of us in New York. And uh, um, I was afraid if I couldn't find a job, and I did go back, I would I would lose Patrick. And um, 
And Lisa was headed to law school in San Francisco, and I knew I was probably never going to see her again. And that just, uh, I just had a lot of feelings, and I didn't know how to name them or what to do with them, and I didn't feel like I could talk about them because I had this front to keep up so you would think I was okay, I guess. And so um, that was when I started to drink every day or every night at the, at the pub on campus. And um, not to the point of hangover yet, but enough to ensure that I would sleep because just grief and confusion about gender preference and <coughs> terror of financial insecurity and confusion about my boyfriend, who I, I would have been crazy to break up with him. He was wonderful. He is wonderful. He's one of my best friends. And um, I could not and did not want to imagine a world without him in it. And uh, it took me 10 years to realize that uh, I was going to have to forfeit that vessel of a relationship with him. Um, and it was one of the hardest things I ever did. But I got a job in corporate America, and we did find a place to live. And uh, we had a lot of fun when we lived in New York. Um, all our friends were there, and you know, Patrick <laughs> was from Houston and um, knew how to navigate the city and, and had very you know, sophisticated musical tastes. And we just we did a lot of good stuff. And, um, but I hated my job. I hated corporate America. I still hate corporate America. Uh, I was praised and promoted and given all kinds of money for being ambitious, competitive, self-centered, and at times dishonest. And that was when my drinking kicked in. And I was drinking every night to the point of hangover the next day. And uh, it was not good. And um, I went to my first day a meeting in 1987 or 88. And uh, Patrick's mother was a recovering alcoholic, and um, she looked like Ann Bancroft and, uh, in, the, in The Graduate and was funny and sophisticated, and there was no stigma for me around alcoholism. Uh, but everyone at the meeting um, had lost jobs and families, and I was glad they had a place to go, but there was nothing that seemed even remotely familiar about their stories to me. I had hangovers. And to this day, when I look back on who I was, um, There's no reason why I would have identified with those people. You know, uh, I had not had the experiences with alcohol that they had. So um, we moved to Austin in 1989, and I started working in the kitchen for Martin Brothers Cafe in the original Whole Foods, and I loved it. And about three of us quit drinking at the same time. One of us used AA. I was just dry for four years, and I think one of us probably went back out. And that was the beginning of my four-year dry spell. And almost immediately, my life got better without alcohol in it. Uh, I got my driver's license. I got my first girlfriend. I came out. I broke up with my boyfriend. I wish it was not in that order. Uh, I got my first apartment. Um, some of the, yeah. uh, I got accepted into a writing program at the university where I've taught ever since, uh, all in less than one year. So that dry run lasted until November of 94. And um, I had gotten a new girlfriend before breaking up with the first one. And she had moved to Seattle. So for revenge, I took up with the drummer in the band. She had left. And this third girlfriend and I were in grad, the grad program together. And I wanted the full grad program experience, the drinking experience. So uh, I, I can't say I relapsed because I wasn't sober. I was just dry. But that lasted about uh, 22 months. And um, after sh that, the third girlfriend moved to Boston. I took up with a truly lovely woman 
uh, who never asked me not to drink, but she told me she'd rather not be around me when I was drunk. And that was inconvenient. <laughs> so uh, we didn't run a U-Haul on the second date, but I did move into her house <laughs> within about two months. And uh, I tried to hide my drinking because I was afraid of losing the relationship. And that was when I came to Bolden in 1996. And I stayed sober for uh, about seven, seven years, that, almost seven years that time. But, um, but this is when I... I this is what happened. Um, there was a lot about that time that was, was great. We fostered puppies, and we went to Laguna Beach every Christmas and Hawaii every spring. But I had trouble with fidelity, particularly where men were concerned. And I went outside that relationship with three different men, um, only one of whom she knows about. And uh, we also briefly moved to Boston and uh, moved back to Austin as soon as we could. And uh, around that time, Sabina decided that she wanted to have a baby. And uh, I was working with a sponsor and trying to figure out if I could show up for that and quit stirring up stuff with men. And my prayers were to be strict lesbian and maternal. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes... The answers to our prayers is no. <laughs> so my sponsor suggested that I inventory my relationship with my mom before I made any decision about having a child. And that inventory was a turning point. And a lot of what was on that is what I just shared with you. That was my, my written fourth step, a lot of it. Um, uh, I thought the problem was my mother and my family were emo emotionally shut down and didn't understand me. And uh, in the inventory, what we identified was a lot of fear and uh, a lot of unconsciousness. Um, and my part was that I was a child, and I thought like a child, and I believed my own thinking. Uh, and I was innocent. And uh, I wasn't estranged from my mom, and I didn't know how to make amends because I hadn't done anything wrong exactly. Um, but she hadn't either. And so what Jan suggested that I do was for her upcoming 80th birthday that I write 80 things about her that made me glad she was my mother. Uh, this is the part where I cried. Uh, 80 things the universe had brought through her. And that wasn't very hard once I started, how she made me skirts with matching headbands and made all my Halloween costumes and my dance costumes and my cheering uniform and the letters from Santa Claus that she left me every Christmas in the morning um, and for taking me to the library every two weeks from the time I was four and reading to me and making me pancakes in the shapes of things she thought I would eat <laughs> and, and for and for cashing the mind reels and uh, for cashing in that life insurance policy so I could go to that writing workshop um, and for telling me after watching a horrible TV movie of the week about an unwed mother called I Want to Keep My Baby <laughs> when I was like 14 or 15 and saying to me, if that ever happens to you, you tell me and we'll take care of it. In 1976, my mother told me that the ink was barely dry on Roe versus Wade. Um, and how I left for college from the same two-story house with the front and backyard that I came home from the hospital to as a newborn, a house in a nice blue-collar neighborhood of Catholic uh, steel mill workers and their families. We easily could have qualified for Section 8 housing, but she kept us in that neighborhood. 
and saying to me after a very long and difficult coming out conversation we had when I was 28, uh, you know, I once heard Eleanor Roosevelt have a lady friend. <laughs> By the time I was done, that list was way more than 80 items. So I'd had a pretty spectacular childhood, but I'd been so focused on the anxiety and fear um, my conscious mind was expressing that genetic predisposition longing for relief in the molecular kiss of alcohol. And I'd had such focus on that, I missed all that other stuff, you know? So um, this is the thing about, the, about house cleaning, the fourth step for anyone who's being pressured to do one right now in February. Um, when I cleared out the junk, the junk thinking, I could see everything more clearly. And um, new things kept occurring to me, like uh, about her, and they still do, like uh, how we had a cold furnace until I was 12. And I don't ever remember waking up to the sensation of cold. Uh, the last thing my mother did before she went to bed and the first thing in the morning she did was fire up that furnace. And when I was little, she would turn on a space heater in the bathroom and lay out my clothes in front of it before I got up for school. And she traded babysitting for art classes so that uh, I could have art lessons. And um, she let me be, a, I was an artist model for one of the classes and she let me keep all the money, which is a lot of money when you're like 12, you know? It might've been $50 over the course of a month, but still, like in the 70s. Um, and I knew that I'd had a remarkable mother when I decided not to have a child, uh, which was a factor that ended, it was not the only factor, but it was a factor that ended Sabina's in my relationship. And I grieved, not for the child I would never have, but for the things I would never pass on to that child um, that had been passed down to me from my mother. And so um, as I've gotten older, I've, I've realized that she's given me some more profound gifts than any of the ones I've listed. Um, I never heard a man raise his voice, much less seen a man raise a hand or a fist to my mother. I never saw her fear any man. She showed me that one could meet financial responsibilities squarely without leaning on anyone. I never saw her define herself or her worth in relation to another person. I never heard her apologize for something that wasn't her responsibility. And if dysfunction is passed down through families, maybe healing can be as well. And so in the name of my own mother, Eileen Daisy Mall Pilkington. <laughs> and a living ninth step to her if some of the grace that passed from her to me can pass to any of you, um, this is what I learned. Um, we might be powerless <coughs> over a partner's unresolved issues around an ex-wife or ex-girlfriend or baby mama, uh, <laughs> but we have a choice about whether or not to hold a place in our lives for that person. To thine own self be true. We might be powerless over a partner's addiction to drugs, or Tinder, or Grinder, or Bumble, uh, or prescription drugs, or food, or pornography, or Facebook, all of the addictions. But we have a choice about whether or not to hold a place in our lives for that person. Happy 
joyous and free. We might be powerless over a partner's verbal, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, but we have a choice whether or not to hold a place in our lives for that person. And the real goal is we don't have to understand. We don't have to be understood. We don't have to make a convincing rhetorical case about why we feel uncomfortable. We just have to be true to ourselves. And we don't have to take that partner's process personally. In fact, that's, uh, that's a form of self-centeredness. If I make uh, myself the focal point of, of another person's choices, they are entitled to the dignity of their own experiences and their own consequences, which might mean losing us. Um, but that's not my hula. <laughs> it's also not our job to suffer any voluntary relationship that is bringing us more distress, discomfort, or sorrow than joy. And something else that I've learned through experience uh, over the course of the la the, my last breakup uh, in 2014 is that the human heart abhors the vacuum. And if I step out in faith and make room in my life, that room will quick quickly fill up with something else. So far, always more wonderful than what I was afraid to release. Uh, it might be another romantic relationship or, or and, and or, it might be a project that shows me a side of myself I didn't even know existed, a cause. But it requires that step out in faith. And I wanted this to be recorded because in the name of our mothers and our daughters and our sisters and Lois, I want you to be able to hear this anytime you need to or want to. And I promise you, it will still be true. Uh, your presence in these rooms for almost 25 of my 57 years, holding this space for me while I learned to pay attention to my life, has been my salvation and my grace, and I require no other gods. I remember the first fifth step I ever heard and watching the fear and confusion and longing to make things right in this young woman's eyes. And I know that we're not worthy of grace. That is the point of grace. It is <laughs> grace. But, but I can act in ways that make me feel worthy of that grace. And um, that was what I saw in her. And it occurred to me that maybe I could act in ways that were worthy of that grace, too. And I wondered if there is such a thing as a God, a sentient being watching over us, which I don't believe in, but I know it's there. Maybe I had a glimmer of how we might look to it in our longing to make things right. And so um, I hope you're not too old or sophisticated or cynical to be sung to, because I'm going to close with four lines of a song that always makes me think of this room. And it goes like this. Someday, when I'm all alone and the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way you look tonight. I can do that. I can sing off key to you because you're my family. <laughs> so, good night, you princesses of Bolden. And you queens of South Austin. <laughs> <laughs>